continuing in this little series called Teach Us to Pray, where a number of weeks ago, we just uh, came to the disciples who are with Jesus asking him this very question, Lord, teach us to pray. And then Jesus turns and he gives them what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And so it's kind of our heart throughout the course of this series to then take up the words of Jesus, if not directly, then to say, well, what is Jesus's heart? And how can this either give us words to pray from, to, or about? And uh, depending on who you talk to and what Christian tradition you may be from, you could sum up the whole of the Christian life in one word, pray. <laughs> it is this ongoing interactive relationship with the divine, the, the community of love that we know and call God. And so um, that is the same place we'll be today, is we're going to be talking about prayer and uh, specifically looking at Jesus's prayer in John 17. Uh, but before we get there, you know, I was just re reflecting on this and uh, thinking about how we've come to this place. And uh, our house is a mix of chaos and beauty. I have a toddler and a one-year-old. And um, the, the, they, it was just our one-year-old's birthday. And he got this like pole-behind toy, and, uh, which is a truck. And my son Finn calls it a dog. And he pulls it around. And then he gets really excited and whips the dog, which is a truck made of wood, around. And it's just it's this beauty and chaos. And it's like everything has changed in my life. I never expected to be like trying to intervene between a toddler and a one-year-old. Uh, and, and yet here I am. Everything had indeed, indeed changed. And this took place three years ago. And I, you know, it's be becoming a father, it was, was and still is a thing I'm learning to live into because your identity is fundamentally transformed in that moment. And I didn't really know the how or the what exactly would take place when fatherhood became a thing that was happening. And I'm not trying to elevate a parental status above any other type of identity. It's just this is unique to my experience that all of a sudden things changed. And so Griffin is born. And then in this, this beautiful moment where um, we're doing the skin to skin time, I don't know, apparently it's supposed to like cultivate attachment. So there he is, he's like kind of slimy and gross and he's on my skin and it's beautiful. I'm crying, he's crying for different reasons. And then this like warm feeling just washes over me. And I'm not talking about like the Holy Spirit warm feeling. I'm like literally there's warmth going down my side and I'm like, oh, oh, he's peeing on me. Oh, everything's changed. Okay, so, um, so then I lift him up to hand him to the nurse who's attending to us, and it's not pee. Uh, Griffin has passed a meconium, and if you don't know what that is, you can Google it. Um, it's, well, I'll just tell you because this is a little communal experience. It's like this green tar that comes out of their body. It's like their first BM, and so that's short for bowel movement. Um, and so there I am. He's like not on me, but he's on me. He's sticking to me. Everything changed. And somehow that moment, like moments after his birth endeared me to him, I had this like fresh love. I don't know if it's because his insides were now on me or, or what it may have been, but there I was holding this person that I loved and I didn't really know what else to do. And you know, I, I had no expectation of what would come after that, but there was this love that was there. And I, I guess I didn't really get that sense of endearment and love that I had for Finn until about a year and some change later, uh, Jess, my wife and I, we were planning on taking a night away. And so you spend a year and some change around a small human and it kind of becomes your world. You just are, it's diaper changes, it's negotiating all sorts of, they're, they're walking, oh, well, they don't walk right out of the womb, that's not like they're a giraffe, but they're crawling and then there's, you're trying to figure out, okay, what can they touch? And then there becomes a moment where there's people 
who offer you some support and give you space to remind, like, remember that you're human. And so all, we were going, and we're going to take this time away, two days and a night. And it was this unexpected mixture of excitement and nerves. And departing the ones that we love, it kind of reveals something in our hearts, doesn't it? It, it draws something out. For us, it was about 10 pages of detailed notes. And, you know, there we were, we're giving all these notes. And, and fortunately, Jessica's parents were uh, able to receive our insecurities as new parents. But, but there was, there's something there. We were like, oh my gosh, why are we, why are we giving 10 pages of detailed notes to these people? <laughs> we know love us. We know they love him. And it was because we dearly love him. We had this this desire to be for him and with him. And really that's at the core of our teaching today. That's at the core of Jesus's prayer. And I like the way that uh, New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, how he, he kind of captures this. He says this, what Jesus now prays grows out of the fact that he's going away. He's entrusting the disciples to the father. The father he has known and loved throughout his own earthly life. The father who he knows will care for them every bit as much as he has done himself. And so with that in mind, if you're not there already, John chapter 17, picking up in verse nine, we're gonna read nine to 19 here. So this is Jesus praying to the Father moments before the cross. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them or set them apart in truth as your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I set myself apart. I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. And this is the word of the Lord. So in all that Jesus is saying here, and that, that's a lot right there. If you notice all the repetitions, this is the way that the Bible speaks to us, is when you notice repetitions of various things, it's saying, pay attention to this. There's a theme being developed here. And so at this point in the gospel, according to John, he's been rapping on this, the whole of the gospel. And so Jesus is drawing to a narrow focus some of these themes but, but in all that's there, I just want us, I want us to focus in on these two specific requests or where Jesus says, I pray. This is in verse 11 and verse 15. And the first request is this in verse 11. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. So there it is. There's the specific request. The name you gave me so they may be one as we are one. So this is almost the sub request. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. And the second, verse 15, right there at the end, protect them from the evil one. And so what we'll do is in the, in the course of this teaching, we're just going to work one after the other. How's that sound? Great. 
Good, there we go, interaction. That's We can do this. We can talk back and forth. Maybe that's a little uncomfortable. It's okay, we're going to do it. Okay, so this is... this. Squishing these two requests together, Jesus has just said that he has preserved and guarded the disciples. He has been with them and for them. And as he makes his way closer to the cross, he's now asking the Father, the Holy Father, to do the same, to protect them and guard them. Or the word that we see there throughout the passage is keep them. And then we'll see that this is actually quite a potent prayer that we can inhabit, we can live in this prayer. And so that's what we're going to do at the end. That's what that piece of paper is for. But before we get there, we need to kind of get into this and what exactly is Jesus make, saying in these two requests. And the, and the one string I want to pull on in this first request is this string, the name. You, you see it there in, in verse, the power of your name, the name you gave me. And Jesus later on says, like he guarded them in that name. So what is this? What is the name that Jesus is talking about? And of all the things that Jesus could pray, the first thing, the first explicit request that he makes is that they would be protected by the power of the name. And so let's, let's pull the thread here. And to, to see this, and this is what's so beautiful about the scriptures and like what my, my like hope and heart is, is that our, our hearts and imaginations would be captivated by this because this is thinking amazing, is the name doesn't just show up right here. There's actually a whole backstory. It's like when you go into, and you just like jump into season three of something and you're like, well, I've heard I could just jump in. But what they do is they give you the recap. You know what I'm talking about. You've been shows. Don't act like you don't. So they give you the recap. We're about to get a recap. So to do so, we need to go back to the beginning, but not quite. So Exodus chapter three, you can flip or tap your way on over there. In Exodus chapter three, we see the God of the Israelites appear to a guy named Moses. And Moses has kind of a complicated history up until this point. See, he had a unique position of privilege in the land of Egypt, even though he was a part of the enslaved people, the Israelites. Then he departs because he uh, kills a guy. And here we find Moses in that complicated scenario, hearing from the God of Israel. And he has this peculiar interaction. And so let's, let's see this, verse 13, Exodus three thirteen. Moses said to God, as you do, uh, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? So you, you see this question isn't just tangential. It's not like Moses is going, okay, this seems like an appropriate question. They're gonna, he's anticipating what they're going to ask. It's no, because he, if he goes back, his life is at risk. He goes back to the space where he was trying to intervene between these two people and he ends up fleeing in shame and fear. And so this is a relevant question. What shall I tell them? Verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And no doubt if you've been around churchianity, you've heard a, like a teaching from the series of the gospel according to John, like an I am series or something where Jesus takes that name. But what we see right here is the God of Israel, the word he says here is the Hebrew word ehyeh, Go ahead and say that with me. Eh, yeah. Kind of, yeah, you kind of get in your throat a little bit there. And this is, I am who I am. In other words, God's name, Ehya, means that he is the one who is and who will be. In other words, God's existence does not depend on anyone or anything. 
This God simply is, and this is his name. But it would sound kind of strange if Moses went up to the Israelites and then said, I will be, has sent me to you, because he's not Ehyeh, he's not I will be. And so in the next sentence, as though the God of Israel anticipates this, we read this in verse 15. Verse 15 God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And that word, whenever you see and you're reading in your Old Testament, the all caps L-O-R-D, that is the divine name. That's this covenantal name, this name of promise and relationship, this name of intimacy. This is Yahweh. He will be. So Moses is to go and say, he will be, has sent me to you, the God of your ancestors. And this name appears some like 6,500 plus times in the Old Testament. This is the name that the people of Israel would come to know as a place of refuge. And, and interestingly, this is the name then that's not to be profaned. You, you may know it as do not take the Lord your God's name in vain. And, and by the way, that's not really about cursing. It's not necessarily about saying like GD or something like that. And see, even there, I'm like, oh, don't, because we're in church or something. But it's not about what we say, although that's not inconsequential, but rather this is about how you carry the name. It's how you lift up because there's something about the name and the way that the people of God inhabit the name and the name inhabits them that that can misrepresent Yahweh to themselves, the people, and the nations. And what's so curious is that that is this idea that the name has this complex identity. It is distinct because only Yahweh can say it. And it's dynamic, it's powerful. And I love how, here comes your obscure German theologian, how he talks about it. This is Gerhard von Rad. He captures this really well talking about Yahweh. The name Yahweh was committed in trust to Israel alone among nations. In it alone lay the guarantee of Yahweh's nearness and of his readiness to help. That's that intimacy. The name shared directly in Yahweh's own holiness. That's the distinctiveness. For indeed it was, so to speak, a devil of his being. More on that in a moment. See, the name begins to show us that God is unique because he is the only one who can say. Remember that interaction between Moses and Yahweh. He, he says, Ehweh, I will be, and yet the name he is to give is Yahweh. How, how are we doing here with our, our Hebrew this morning? This is fantastic. I'm loving it. So Yahweh is distinct. He's holy. He's the only one who can truly say his name as it is. And what we see is that this actually progresses a bit more throughout the story. So if you can flip to your right a little bit and you'll find yourself in Deuteronomy chapter 12. So Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse four, this is uh, the people of Israel have had quite a journey now. They've been delivered from being enslaved people in the land of Egypt. And then they have this, um, this mistrust or this misplaced trust with God. Will he really do what he'll say? And so they wander in the wilderness and there they are on the cusp going into the land that God has promised for them to inhabit. And then we read this, Deuteronomy 12, 4. You must not worship Yahweh your God in their way. And recall, this is the, the, they're going into a space where there would be people who are ascribing worth to other gods. They would, be, they, would be doing, they would be ascribing worth in ways that would be incongruent with the people of God. 
because this is all about them being a contrast community. And so then we hear it here, verse five, Deuteronomy 12, five, but you are to seek the place, the place Yahweh your God will choose from among all your tribes. And hear this, to put his name for his dwelling. To that place you must go. See, God's name is distinct, that is, it's holy, and it's also dynamic, it's powerful. And this, at first glance, this passage is kind of quirky, it, it, and it reads as such, it's a little odd, because who puts their name in a place? If you think about this, this could be, I, I heard this referenced as um, when you were a teenager, or maybe you are a teenager right now, and you think about your room, maybe you actually have the gift of being able to have your own room, and so you have posters and paraphernalia all around your room, and it's like your reputation is comprised in that place. It's your glory. Someone walks, if you're not there and they show up, they see a picture of who you are. You could say that your name is in the room. That's kind of what's going on here. God places his name, his reputation in this place, and that is where the people of Israel are to go. And it creates this interesting thing where, and we're just, we're unpacking it right now. Who, who's there? Is it Yahweh or the name? Who's going to be in this place of worship? And it's kind of a trick question. The answer is yes. The name begins to represent Yahweh. It's, it, or as Von Rad just said, it doubles for the Lord. And we could spend the whole of the morning and afternoon and probably a whole month tracing this through the biblical narrative and like one person here would have a blast. But for the sake of time, we just want to see that this is a movement that continues to pick up steam. And then we get back to where we started in John chapter 17. So go ahead and flip back over there with me. And before we get to our teaching text, look up at John 17, 6, because Jesus is going to be riffing on this. And if you're, I'm reading the NIV, and this is what we read. John 17, 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Is anybody uh, reading in a different translation? Anybody have something different there? If you're reading in the ESV, maybe you just read, I've revealed your name. See, what the, you'll see a little footnote in the NIV is that this idea, and, and it makes sense because um, when the translators are seeing this, uh, I have revealed you, that is, I've revealed the Father, is the same as I've revealed the name. But that little footnote is, is important to see because what it's, and it would be helpful for us to read it as such, I have revealed the name to those whom you gave me out of the world. And the reason it would be helpful for us to read that is because when we get to our passage, it would give us some, some scaffolding. It would say, this is what we're set to anticipate because we see it in verse six, I've revealed the name to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave me and they obeyed your word. And now look again at our passage starting in verse 11. Jesus says, I'll remain in the world no longer. And then he says this, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. So now the name has moved from this temple space, this place of worship, and the name is on Jesus so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them. I kept them safe by the name you gave me. And so the name, it's on Jesus. It seems to be all consuming. It's like it is Jesus and yet Jesus is distinct from the name. There's this complexity there. But then check this out because this is where it begins to get kind of potent for you and me. And Jesus's request is that we would be one 
as he and the Father are one. This is where the name would begin to envelop us, that we would not just be people of the word who obey it, but we would be people of the name. And this is then how Jesus goes on to describe it. He, he begins to unpack this as he shares his heart for these people. And we see this here in verse 13. But just, I guess, um, but before we get there, I, I like this may be like a little pastoral note, but if Jesus has felt cold or distant to you in this season, if you've felt like I, I have been praying, I've been calling out, I, I've been, I have been obedient, I've been faithful, I've, I have like, I've taken up fixed hour prayer. You know that whole rule of life thing we talked about? I have all this stuff and yet it feels like I seldom have ever hear from God. What, if this resonates with you, let these words wash over your heart and then preach them to your soul. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, is praying that we would be consumed by, we would be enveloped in the protection of the Holy Father, that we would be kept secure in his name. This is Jesus's heart for his church, for you and for me. And now let's hear the rest of what Jesus has to say. Verse 13 he says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things. That is this request for unity in the name. I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy. Just hear that. Like Jesus's heart is for you to have joy. Not happiness, which is according to the happenstances of your life, the happenings that are going on, but joy, something that can preserve, be preserved through challenging circumstances. He wants us to have not just a little bit, not just a tiny bit, but the full measure within us. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And then the second explicit request, verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So the request one, keep them in the name. Request two is this extension, protect them from the evil one. So what comes to your mind when you hear that read? Protect them from the evil one. Anybody? Somebody's gotta have like the little cartoon guy with the pitchfork, the tail, no? Okay, maybe just a millennial. My brain was awash in cartoons Saturday morning, so. So this is, this is the stuff that can capture our imagination is protect them from the evil one. What does this even mean? And trust me, those verses that we just read, we could get into some stuff. I mean, we could talk about uh, the theology of the world. We could talk about divine protection or spiritual warfare, which uh, maybe we'll do another time. Uh, we could talk about holiness. There's a whole lot of really rich things. But as we pull on this thread of the name, we need to sit with the implications of Jesus's honesty because at the core of this prayer is Jesus's honesty. So remember the scene that we're in. A little context here will help us stay awake. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples. They're in Jerusalem. This is the holy city of Israel. And this is the Passover time. This means that there's tons and tons of people. It's like the most epic festival. All of the people have come and they're ready for, I guess the equ equivalent would be like the rager or something like that. But it's not EDM and stuff. It's um, like religious rituals. And so there they are. They're like set to encounter the divine. And there's this uh, messianic expectation in the air. And if you've not heard that term, let me unpack this for you. This messianic expectation is that there would be a person who would come and deliver the people of Israel from their oppressors. 
And in this case, it's Rome. It's the Roman military oppressors. They want them out. And Jesus, he's been doing all these Messiah-like things. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He could be the guy. And so there's this messianic fervor in the air. And Jesus deflates it all. He just pops the bubble because he says, I'm going away. And then he makes it even weirder because he links it to the fullness of joy, to oppression, and to holiness. And so because Jesus' words are a bit complicated, we're just going to sit in this as we close. Because the request, this prayer, the second explicit request that we see in verse 15 is that we would be guarded, kept safe, protected from the evil one. And so what is Jesus getting at? Well, well, we can see it in part when we see this connection between the world and the evil one. Because for Jesus, the world is a system opposed to God. So it's a system opposed to God and it's animated by the evil one. And the evil one in the biblical imagination is this like occupying invader of God's good world. It's not this idea that God has this equal and opposite force that's competing with him. No, no, no. It's, it's that the evil one would be this um, rebellious spiritual being who is purposefully attacking and degrading God's peace in the world. Elsewhere in the New Testament, you'll, we- you'll read some other weird stuff or things that just feel a bit unfamiliar, talking about the, the ruler of this present darkness. Or you'll read descriptions of this very real power at work, this rulers and principalities. And again, not an equal and opposite force to Yahweh, but a created spiritual rebellion, like being in rebellion to God's flourishing. And I think at first glance, like I remember the first time coming across this, and this was through a a scholar named Michael Heiser. Uh, He has this book called Unseen Realm. If you don't want as many footnotes, go uh, Spiritual Beings, I think, or I think that's it. I don't know, Google it, Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R. But he started talking about it and I'm like, this is weird. This is like something out of the Marvel universe. This is just, this is like Thor's hammer. I don't actually know if I have a category for this. And yet this is the category of the Bible. The Bible is stranger and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And so we're invited into this. And in fact, we see Jesus doing business with this reality. And so uh, this is my favorite part of the teaching, by the way. So turn with me to John chapter eight, because this is where it gets real. Uh, Jesus actually describes how the evil one, the one he's asking the father to protect us from, interacts with the world. This is John chapter eight. Let's see this in verse 44. Describing the evil one, he was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Have you ever had a moment where like a thought kind of takes root and it feels as though that thought is like animated in some sense, like you can't shake it? If you have that would map on to what Jesus is talking here, that there is, there is a lie that, is, that actually comes to bear. And so then the thing that we can compete with, we combat the lie with is truth. But, and, and this can be a great passage that you hear people talking about in spiritual warfare stuff, but sometimes it's abused. So we need the context to help us understand that. Just like if you throw a tweet out there, like a tweet is a contextless statement. And so a tweet in that regard is of no good. So you need what's actually going on around this. So the context is that Jesus is going toe to toe with the religious leaders of the day. 
Jesus is having this engaged dialogue, what we could even call an argument. And his opponents in this case, the religious leaders, they're saying that their father is Abraham, the, the, the ancestor, and more so that their father is the father in heaven, and Jesus has no place with that. And so they begin to dismiss Jesus. And then they go here, they call Jesus demon-possessed. Because if you're having an argument and you're not getting your way, you just say, well, you're probably possessed by a demon. And so Jesus then responds to this in verse 54, chapter eight, verse 54. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself and hold on to that, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. By the way, that's how you throw shade in the first century. Right there, this is, Jesus is at his best. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And then this is their response. Bro, you're not even 50. How do you say that you saw Abraham? They didn't say bro, but look how Jesus responds. Verse 58, his very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, eh, yeah. I am. This is where we go, oh, he did. Yes, he did. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. And this is not like a rap battle because at a rap battle, you don't, well, hopefully, like generally you don't see people getting shot. Jesus right here gets a death threat because he claims the name that only Yahweh can have on his lips. And so if you've had an intense conversation about religion or politics or Thanksgiving is ahead of you and you already feel a bit anxious about going home because religion and politics, um, just know it can get a little bit worse. Like there's something different that can happen. Jesus gets a death threat for exposing these leaders for who they truly are. And if you want to know what I mean by that, uh, check this out. Back in verse 54, he says, I if I glorify myself, insinuating, implying that they are the ones who glorify themselves. And they claim they know the Father, but it's actually the Father who glorifies Jesus. They don't know him at all. So this is Jesus exposing them as those who actually have no knowledge of God. And this happens, right? This is, the, this is the thing that informs Jesus's request to protect them from the evil one. So what is the protection? Is Jesus asking that we be protected from the stonings? Is he like asking that we be protected from the intense tweets that come our way or the social ostracization where we're pushed aside or disregarded? I would say no. It, it seems as though Jesus is not asking for us to be protected from the threats or the stonings or even a cross, but from complicity with evil, from actually joining up with a system that's opposed to God to the point where our lives may look religious, but when you look at the substance of our life, there's nothing congruent with God. Like we seek death while claiming life, which is exactly what these religious leaders did. This is a potent prayer if we would receive it as such. And I think, um, you know, for some of us, and this is, I count myself in this, like I have this thought like, well, I would, never, I would never name the name of Jesus or claim the name of Jesus and seek death at the same time because that's just not who I am. And so it's, this, this can sound a little ridiculous, but then I, I think about like the course of the conversations I get to have with people in the course of ministry in the course of my own life. And like Christians are not immune to pornographic consumption. That's, 
That's seeking death in the midst of life. Like Christians aren't immune to unchecked consumerism that objectifies people. That's death in the midst of life. And Christians certainly aren't immune to prestige seeking that glorifies some and vilifies others. That's death while claiming life. See, we actually need Jesus's prayer to be something that we receive because we actually need the power of God's sustaining name. Like, what if we were people of the name more than just people of the word? I've been experiencing this a lot recently is uh, conversations about right doctrine in this cultural moment. Like, well, what do we believe? What do we stand on? And I, you know, getting to pastor in Des Moines, I've been able to, to meet with and connect with a lot of pastors. And that's where those conversations are happening is like, well, where do we draw the line? What is the, what's the place? Like, what's the threshold where here's orthodoxy and fidelity to Jesus. But then if you cross over on this side, you're basically a heretic. And, and I appreciate those conversations about doctrine, but doctrine doesn't mean anything if you don't actually have the fruit of life with God present. You could have a beautiful doctrinal statement and yet be like, habitually engaging in pornography. You could be abusing people physically, emotionally, spiritually, and yet have a beautiful doctrinal statement. And see, Jesus is after our heart. He's after us to have union with the Father because that is where the fullness of joy is. See, when we come to that time of confession and assurance, it's actually a place for us to say in the presence of others, Yeah, things are not, my desires are disordered and I'm trusting the spirit of the living God to do this transforming work. That's why we come together. If we, if you come here to be entertained, let me tell you, you will be let down. (laughs) And if that is our sole ambition, please go like, it's just not the thing. It cannot be the thing because that's not where the fullness of joy resides. And we see it actually pretty fully in the last line of our passage, verse 19, check this out. Jesus says, I set myself apart. I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. We're invited into this work. This is a call for us to participate, to actually be the type of people who live as though God's powerful name is at work in the world and through us. I mean, this is, this is amazing that we would be the type of people who could manifest the name of God. This would be the place where the Israelites were commanded to seek the presence of God for renewal and restoration and the abiding presence of love. That's actually in the church. That's why you read these crazy things like at the end of Romans chapter eight, we read this, Romans chapter eight, 31. If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The fullness of joy. 33, who will, not, who will bring a charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And pause right there. You see, death actually has no hold in Jesus' name. 
And we see this, Paul goes on in verse 37, no, in all these things, even in death, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he's convinced, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is the fullness of joy, 